Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, I don't think I've seen so many substantial changes in policy so quickly as we've seen in school choice over the past year. It used to be that public education was delivered by public schools, and the only debate around it was how much more to give the institutions next year. That started to change in the 90s, gained some momentum in the 2000s, and now multiple states are considering major changes to directly fund students as their parents try to find the best way to give them an education. Corey DeAngelis is the National Director of Research for the American Federation for Children, and he is the loudest voice for school choice. And he is with us today to talk about the battles he's fighting, the victories he's been a part of, and the tactics he uses to push reforms across the finish line. Corey, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. What are the school choice reforms going on right now? Yeah, so in 2021, we're at, we actually already uh, declared that it will it is the year of school choice last year because 19 states expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems, which was a huge surge relative to previous years. I think the, the previous legislative session, it was only one state had a new private school choice program. Utah had enacted a new tax credit scholarship program. And you go from that to 19 state victories in 2021, and the best part about it is 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 that is mostly the teachers union's own fault for overplaying their hand and showing their true colors during covid at the worst time possible trying to protect it themselves as opposed to meeting the needs of families in 2022 we've had over 30 uh, legislators in over 30 states introduce bills to fund students as opposed to systems and uh, we're in the middle of the session right now and seeing how things shake up. Uh, but most of these states are introducing something called education savings accounts. It's the new gold standard of school choice, kind of like the voucher idea where the money that would have followed you to the government run school, you could still take it there. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school. But if not, that funding would go into an education savings account directed by the parents it's typically about half of the total amount that's spent in the government-run schools. And then you can use that funding for private school tuition and fees like a voucher, but you could also use the funding for any other approved education provider, including uh, private tutoring, textbooks, instructional materials, micro-schooling, home-based home education expenses like curriculum, uh, and, and so on. So it really takes us from school choice to education choice, and this is the purest form of funding students as opposed to systems. Yeah, we had uh, Garrett uh, Garrett in West Virginia uh, come in and talk about his program. But can you do- dig in specifically for our listeners about how this uh, this uh, program works? Yeah, totally. So, vi- so West Virginia, I would say, was the biggest victory in 2021. It's something called an education savings account. And in 2021, the number of states with these education savings accounts doubled from five states to 10 states. And also in 2021, Michigan had a victory, but it was it passed through the legislature education savings account program, but it was vetoed by Governor Whitmer. Uh, but the fight isn't over yet. There is a Let Michigan Kids Learn initiative 
petition sign up. And uh, I'm sure your listeners already know this, but in Michigan, you can essentially override a veto if you get hundred a, a few hundred thousand signatures on a petition. And I think that's going to happen in Michigan. And so Michigan might be the 11th state with an education savings account. But going back to West Virginia, I call this the biggest victory. Uh, one, because uh, they made a substantial amount of progress relative to where they started. They didn't have any charter schools in, on the ground in 2020. West Virginia didn't have any private school choice initiatives allowing the funding to follow a child to a private provider of education. Then in 2021, they have this program that allows the full state level uh, portion of the funding to follow the child to an education savings account for uh, essentially all families, regardless of their income, they they can they can exercise that choice, and it it turns out that about ninety four percent of the school age population is eligible for this program in the state of Virginia in year one, and it'll expand to a hundred percent in a few years once um, their switcher requirement comes off of the program. And for listeners who aren't. Uh, um, haven't heard of what the switcher requirement is. It's essentially that uh, in order to use the program in the first year, you had to switch out of a public school. Bills are often written this way to guarantee financial benefits or at least reduce any costs of the program because uh, the private school families who are already paying out of pocket, they weren't getting covered uh, previously. But the reality is everyone is guaranteed a taxpayer-funded public education and, and we don't restrict access to public schools based on your income. Every single family should be able to take their kids' education dollars to wherever they're getting an education, whether that's a public school or a private school. And West Virginia took a huge step in the right direction, and they're essentially the model now for other states to look, look towards. You mentioned that there's much more interest now because of what teachers' unions did during covid what do they do? And what was the reaction? Yeah, the way that I put it before is that COVID didn't break the government school system. In a lot of ways, it was already broken. And the past two years now have simply shined a spotlight on the main problem with K-12 education all across the country, which happens to be a massive, long-existing power imbalance between the teachers' union monopoly and individual families. You had the private schools fighting to reopen, or in some cases, they were open the entire time. They were able to figure it out from the get-go. But then you had the public school teachers unions fighting for the opposite. They were fighting to remain closed in the same towns. And it's not because the people in the public sector were less competent. It's not because they, 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 they had bad intentions. I think the main difference there was one of incentives, that one of those sectors receives children's education dollars regardless of whether they even open their doors for business. And that became clearer than ever to so many families over the past two years. You had the Randy Weingarten, uh, American Federation of Teachers, explicitly lobbying to, to switch CDC guidelines to make it more difficult for schools to reopen for in-person instruction, or at least make the case easier to close school public schools longer. And it was... it. it one of the reasons for for this this push was was that the the teachers unions understood that they could keep their benefits the same in terms of job security and pay while reducing costs in terms of commute times and providing in-person services but it was even worse than that especially especially in states like Michigan 
where two weeks to slow the spread turned into two years to flatten a generation of children. I mean, this hurt kids academically, mentally, socially, even physically. You had Detroit public schools, which they're planning on spending over $26,000 per student in the 2022 budget. Uh they were trying to keep schools closed uh, into 22. And and even before uh, the winter break, I think they they had Fridays off. And, you know, there's a lot of COVID variants. And we all know this. There was the Delta variant, the Omicron variant. In Detroit, they had the Friday variant. They closed schools on Fridays because obviously the virus is really smart and it knows it can only get you on Friday. So you have to extend your weekend a little bit. But no, we all, we all knew it was a bunch of... Uh, it was just so bogus, and the hypocrisy was nonstop as well. You had Chicago Teachers Union board member vacationing in Puerto Rico in person while railing against going back to work in person. You had Teachers Union presidents in California uh, railing against going back to work for the members, but then sending their own kids to in-person private preschools. It was just the hypocrisy told the story itself. Uh, but to get back to the incentives, the teachers' union started to understand that they could hold children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from, from the federal government. And it, it essentially worked for them. Since March of 2020, uh, the, the federal government has allocated about $190 billion, which turns out to be about three to $4,000 per student uh, nationwide. In, in supposed COVID relief funding, a majority of which hasn't even been spent yet. And we're in 2022 right now. And a lot of the funding wasn't even spent on safety. You have, you have the Associated Press reporting that some states were spending the money on uh, sports stadiums. Others were, uh, as reported by the Daily Wire, were spending the COVID relief on diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. I mean, it, it, it was really never about safety. It was always more had more to do with politics and power dynamics than and safety and and the needs of millions of families in Detroit, uh, the Mackinac uh, Center reported that in COVID relief they received about twenty six thousand dollars per student since March of twenty twenty. I think uh, Mackinac also reported that Flint Public Schools, which had indefinite school closures at one point in twenty twenty two receiving even more than Detroit. I don't remember the exact per student. It might've been like $50,000 per kid, but it was a ton of money. It, and was, it was up there and, uh, and people can check that out on our website. It's been, and in the meantime, like in Detroit, especially the majority of students don't go to the Detroit public schools, but the charter schools they go to don't get this kind of extra treatment. Yeah. And in Detroit, the latest uh, numbers that I've seen, I did a report with, um, Ben DeGroe at Mackinac looking at the differences in funding and outcomes when it comes to the Detroit public school, uh, traditional public schools versus the public charter schools. I also did some research on this more recently in 2021, I believe, with a team at the University of Arkansas, finding that Detroit charter schools already get about 29% less funding per student uh, relative to the traditional uh, government-run schools in Detroit. So they get about the same or, or, in some cases, better outcomes for at a fraction of the cost. And then you have this uh, this COVID relief disproportionately going to the government-run schools, which only further exacerbates those inequities. I mean, the, the children should get the same amount of taxpayer-funded education dollars regardless of the type of public school that works for them, whether that's a traditional or a charter public school. And and to be to be frank, 
it shouldn't matter whether they want to take that money to a private school. They should get the same amount of money. The, the, the money is meant for educating the children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether it's public or private. The money belongs to the kids, not the buildings. And school choice and education savings accounts are the best way for us to get there. But one more thing I want to add on why this has fueled the fire behind parents to push for school choice is that remote learning had a lot of negative effects. We know that. But there was a silver lining in that parents had an added level of transparency. They got to see what was going on in the classroom more like more than they had ever had before. And some parents, even parents who thought their kids were in great public schools, maybe their school was A-rated by the district or the state. Uh, maybe their school, their kids were getting great standardized test scores. Maybe they were A-honor roll students. Um, started to figure out that even if the school's doing well on all these other metrics, uh, it might be failing in other ways. They started to see another dimension of school quality, which is in some cases for some families more important than standardized test scores, which happens to be whether the curriculum aligns with the family's values. And uh, parents didn't like what they, they heard. They started pushing back at school board meetings, uh, which led to uh, the National School Boards Association essentially uh, setting, sending a letter to the Biden administration implying that some parents should be investigated as quote unquote domestic terrorists for pushing back at school board meetings and voicing their concerns about curriculum that that is not aligned with their values, which uh, essentially led to a, a, a dissolution of the NSBA. They should probably rename themselves to the, the, the Regional School Boards Association because 19, 21 states now, 21 state school board associations have already pulled their membership or their funding from the NSBA. So it really backfired on them. And it really shows you that these past two years in general really show you that if parents band together, they can really push for change and, and, and make change happen on the ground in a short amount of time. We saw that with the school choice victories. We've seen this with the fallout of the NSBA. Don't mess with parents because they are going to fight for the right to educate their kids as they see fit harder than anyone will ever fight to take that right away from them. And in a way, they've essentially become a new special interest group in K-12 education uh, when they band together. And they are the most powerful special interest group if they can continue to, to, to band together and, and push for the same policies. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that 19 states passed reforms uh, last year, and you've got 30 states with legislation. And in the middle of all, each one of these fights, whenever there's serious legislative discussion, you're in the middle of it. What do you do to help uh, legislators as they are considering uh, these changes? Yeah, so one, one thing I do is just report on what's going on. Um, so whenever a bill is introduced or passed... I will report on it in, on social media. I have a pretty big microphone on Twitter, especially, and get people excited about what's happening. Um, and and especially in 2021, there, it seemed like there was just something happening every day. And uh, I, I also created a map at the Educational Freedom Institute website where people could look at their state, see if there's a bill introduced and what, where it's at, what the votes were, because it, it is a lot of information to track. So that was 
helpful, just reporting, but then also pushing back against the false narratives that are perpetuated by the teachers unions and the superintendents associations and the school board associations in every single state. Whenever one of these bills is introduced or if there's about to be a vote, they all start freaking out and they start sounding the alarms. Sometimes I'll just respond by saying it's afraid. I mean, that happened this morning. Uh, Iowa, their full Senate is expected to vote on an education savings account bill today that is championed by Iowa mm-hmm. Governor Kim Reynolds, who also and signed today our- Today is March 30th, 2022 yes. for yes, our so, listeners. Uh, yep. Yeah, so, um, and, you know, the, the Senate Democrats freaked out on their Twitter account. Um, and then, the, but also the Iowa State Education Association said, oh, it's going to defund the public schools. And sometimes I'll just respond with a, you know, a, a rhetorical question. Why would giving families a choice- defund public schools. And I usually get blocked for that question because there's no good answer from the other side. They can only say two things, uh, one of two things. They'll either have to say, well, you know, that'll happen because families will choose to, to leave the failing public schools and they'll go to the private school. And while that's an admission of failure, you understand that families aren't happy with what they're getting. That's an argument for choice, not against it. You're essentially conceding my point. Uh, otherwise, they might say, and this doesn't happen all that often, but when it does, it blows up in their face. They'll have to try to say that, well, you know, these are low-income families that are getting to choose, and well, you know, they might choose this other school, but it's only because they're being tricked. It's the advertising, and you know, they don't really know. But the reality is, the public school is actually better, obviously. But that's an uh, that's a ridiculous paternalistic argument that will really blow up in their face, especially when uh, in a lot of cases they send their own kids to private schools. That level of hypocrisy gets exposed as well. Uh, and then I'll ju- I like to bring in analogies to the conversation just to show how ridiculous the other side's points are, um, and and sometimes a form of a, a rhetorical question by asking them. You know, you, you support food stamps. Do you believe that all families using food stamps should be forced to take that funding to a government-run provider of groceries? And they won't respond to that either mm-hmm. because the, they'll, they'll often repeat this ridiculous phrase. They'll say, public funds for public schools. First of all, there's no such thing as public funds. It's taxpayer funding that comes from private hands. But then second of all, there's taxpayer funds that can be used at private institutions for essentially everything else, including higher education. You have Pell Grants that can be used for public universities if you want, but you could also use it for a private religious or non-religious university. Um, and I always also like to expose logical inconsistencies. Uh, by the way, I, I, I think that's, it's, it's such a silly, uh, silly point when you when you give it a little bit of attention because it's like, it's not like public schools are building their own desk chair, uh, desks and chairs. Like yeah. the yeah. public and private sectors are, are very much intermingled. Uh, taxpayer funding uh, goes to private interest often be, and, and it should when that's the best way to par- provide public benefits. Yeah. And the best person to determine that uh, 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 would, would be the parents because they know their kids needs more than, than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. And uh, yeah, so like it, it, just showing the hypocrisy of um, one, a lot of times these elected officials exercise school choice for their own families and then oppose it for others. But then two, they a lot of the times the main opponents of school choice and allowing the funding to follow the child support money following the decision of individuals when it comes to 
higher education and pre-K. And for every other industry, whether it's food stamps or Medicaid or Section 8 housing vouchers or any other program that allows the funding to follow the decision of the family to a private institution or a public institution, uh, they only get all up in arms about this concept when it comes to those in-between years of K-12 through education. And so I, I like to point that out in, in so many different ways, and it they don't really have a good response to it uh, because the reality is the only difference there is one of power dynamics. Choice is the norm for higher education, pre-K, and just about everything else, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest only when it comes to K-12 education, the teachers' unions and the superintendents' unions, and of course, they fight as hard as possible against any change to the status quo. Yeah. So let me try and summarize what I think the value you're providing to legislators. Like we've talked a lot about this issue, the ins and outs, the, the interest groups uh, uh, that are that are part of this one. But when I see uh, legislation being under consideration, especially big legislation like this, like lawmakers have tended to have already made up their mind on an issue before the legislative battle has even begun. But their stance is fickle. Like they need to feel confident that they've got the right responses to everything, even if they haven't done their homework yet. Um, they feel like they need to be on the side that's doing the dunking rather than the side that's being dunked on. And they are sensitive to feedback, especially from their own constituents. So they have their antennas in tune to the popularity of the issue and the responses that they're getting as this legislation is being worked through. And if nothing else, what you're doing is bolstering uh, their confidence when they're being attacked. Um, now, do you think that's a good summary of like what legislators get out of your work? Yeah, totally. I, I provide uh, soundbite talking points that get the point across. And I mean, uh, look, Twitter is a bad place for so many reasons, but it's great in that it forces you to think and uh, communicate in sound bites. And whether you like it or not, the majority of the population, if you can't convince them in a few sound bites, you're, you're, you're toast. Uh, and if you're explaining, you're losing. And I think Twitter has also trained me to be a more effective communicator. And look, I, I don't like Twitter for a lot of reasons, but this is one of the benefits. And uh, a lot of the times I've been asked, hey, can you give me like a, a, a bullet point of responses to arguments that you've heard from the other side? And I'll typically just say, hey, man, just follow me on Twitter and you'll you'll see okay. you'll see how to like what what I'm dealing with and how I respond to them. And um, yes, I use data and, and research to back it up as well. But I don't lead with these 20, 50 page articles, because if you do that. You're not going to convince any third party watching the exchange. You're not going to convince the uh, you the have person written you're those papers too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started all this in academia at doing a PhD at the University of Arkansas. I've published several peer reviewed articles, and you, you need that kind of work. You need the um, to, the research and 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 to be able to back up your claims with evidence, obviously. But you don't want to just get into an argument with someone and say, well. Well, I'm right because there, here's this 50-page article. Go read it. No, the person's not going to read it unless unless they are really, really, really interested, and uh, that's just a lot of work. So you got you have to beat them on the logic and then back up your logic with evidence uh, as well. Um, so it's I think that's yes, I think it's a good summary of kind of what I do, um, and also just again just reporting. Um, 
how the votes go uh, and, and in some ways that that holds people accountable. If you, you can't say you support school choice and then vote against an education savings account bill. Um, Wait, so sometimes I'll frequent? just report that information too. That, well, um, yeah, people who pretend to be, um, um, you know, super uh, aligned with, with the Republican party, for example, on, on everything and, and, and put conservative in their bio and, you know, Trump Republican in my body. And, uh, and then they'll come out and vote against school choice sometimes. And, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but, um, you know, in Michigan, it wasn't such a, such an issue, right? I think, I believe it was a pretty close party line vote in the house and the Senate in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some cases, um, you, you have a little bit more trouble. For example, in, in Kentucky last year, they passed an education savings account program and good for them. But the vote was pretty dang close. Uh, Bashir, the Democrat governor, vetoed it, even though he sent his kids to private school and attended private school himself for some years, uh, which I would say makes him a school choice hypocrite. But the veto override only required 51% in Kentucky. And they, I think they got exactly the right number of votes, even though Kentucky is a state that has a super majority um, Republican uh, makeup in both chambers. So let's go back to to the to what Twitter brings to this fight because, like education policy, it's really important. It touches a lot of people, but talking about education policy doesn't tend to attract a lot of attention. <laughs> How did you get nearly or get more than 90,000 Twitter followers just by talking about education policy? I don't know. Um, yeah, I started I started doing the Twitter thing like, what, five years ago now? And, you know, I had like a thousand followers when I really started getting going. Now it's, yes, over 90,000 followers. And I think I've just kind of talked about these things in a different way. I mean, I, I really started my social media presence just doing what I talked about earlier. Just here's my study. Um, I hope you're interested in my study. I thought it was a super interesting study, but the thing is no one's going to read 50 pages. And when I would get into arguments with people at first, I, I just wanted to, to be them to listen to the evidence. That's not very convincing and it's not very interesting that, that, although it should be how people operate. That's, that's not what, that's not what people listen to and not, not what get, gets them excited and giving them a 50 page article is obviously not going to make them excited either, especially in a place uh, like Twitter. So I started to change how I made arguments. And at first I thought that, um, you know, it was just that school choice was such a complicated issue and we're fighting against the status quo. And I have to explain a lot in order to get things done, but then I'm over explaining and um, it turned out I just I, I wasn't I didn't understand it as well as I thought I did. And I think when you really understand something and learn more about it, you become more likely to be able to uh, argue in sound bites in a more effective way. And I think I've changed it with analogies, pointing out logical inconsistencies, pointing out hypocrisy, um, things that don't require a lot of explaining that makes the battle's more interesting and makes the point come across without me even having to make a real argument. Um, I can just point something out, let the third party make a decision based on how I frame what I point out. And uh, I think you're more likely to convince 
third parties who are interested in learning more that way. Yeah, and I hope that that is uh, that is Twitter being used for good, which is experts who uh, are able to carefully narrow their craft in a way that is broadly appealing, that gets to the essential parts uh, where people can trust that this person has actually done the research, that you can trust what they say. Uh, and, and I hope that your success on this one demonstrates that people are actually interested in that too, uh, in addition to all the terrible things that Twitter can be used for. Yeah, I, I will say another, um, you know, the pandemic obviously helped. I mean, it hurt people in, in real mm-hmm. ways. But the silver lining, as people have said so many times, is that it has surged, uh, increased support for school choice because one, school the school closures upset parents, the curriculum upset parents. But then also there was other battles too about whether you had this COVID mitigation strategy or that one in the public schools um, or, or, you know, do, do you have this type of curriculum or that type of, I mean, all of these problems, all these battles that bubbled up over the past two years were really just symptoms of the larger problem, which happened to be a one size fits all government school system. And the only way out of this mess going forward with freedom rather than force is to allow every single family to take their kids' education dollars to the education provider that best aligns with their values and meets their needs. The reality is parents are going to disagree about how they want their kids raised and how they want their kids educated. And that's okay. Um, But there is no real solution in the traditional system without choice. You have to allow people to sort uh, because otherwise you're going to have a majority decide how other families should raise their kids. And that's where the issue lies. If, if we want to embrace freedom, we have to embrace school choice. And I think that's become more and more obvious uh, over the years. And I want to say another another um, kind of launching point for me, I think, was in 2019, during the Democratic uh, presidential uh, primary, Education Week had asked all of the candidates, you know, uh, where did you go to school and where did you send your kids to school, public or private? And uh, most of them answered. Elizabeth Warren answered, too. And she answered only half of the, the survey, though. She answered. She said, I went to public schools. No comment for where I sent my kids to schools. So that made me think, well, if she sent her kids to public schools, she would have she would have bragged about that. Right. She would have responded that way. And after a ton of digging, I uncovered for the first time that she had sent her son, Alex Warren, to a private school in in Austin, Texas, and then also in Pennsylvania, and uh, exposed some school choice hypocrisy there. And then also it turned out that after I wrote about it in the New York Post, she must have not seen the article because not too long later, she was caught on video uh, by a a grandparent, Sarah Carpenter, and and voter in Atlanta, Georgia, asking Elizabeth Warren, or or saying, you know, I, I heard you sent your kid to private school, Uh, I just want the same kind of options you have. And Elizabeth Warren very quietly um, and and kind of closed her arms a little bit and said, no, I sent my kids to public schools, which was a false denial. It was a lie. And that blew up even bigger in her face. And that kind of, I was the person to expose that hypocrisy. And again, like, I don't blame Elizabeth Warren for sending her kid to private school. I don't blame any politician for seeking the best educational options for their kids, whether that's a public school in a great area or that's a private school, whether they want to homeschool your kids. But you shouldn't turn around and fight against less advantaged families from having the same kinds of opportunities. 
How optimistic are you about funding students in the future? I'm super optimistic. I mean, look, we had huge victories in 2021. We uh, the, the polling has been through the roof. If you look at the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling, there's been an eight percentage point jump in support of school choice, or if you're hip with the lingo by now, in support of funding students as opposed to systems. And it, that went from 64% support nationwide in April of 2020 to about 72% support nationwide in February of 2022. And um, there was a nine percentage point su- surge in support among Democrats. I believe among Democrats, independents, and Republicans, there's super majority uh, support across party lines. Texas just had their primaries. And on the Republican primary, they listed school choice as one of the propositions. And the last time that I had seen that they had done that was in 2018. Well, their support on the ballot in Texas Republican primary jumped since 2018 by nine percentage points from about 79% in 2018 to 80, about 88% in, uh, in 2022. And that's almost better than a poll because it's actual voters going to the ballot box and responding in this way, and overwhelming changes political incentives much more than polls do. Yeah, totally. And and you know you hear these arguments in states like Texas as to why they it, they can't have school choice because Texas, look, they've had a Republican trifecta for two decades now, and they don't have any private school choice programs. They have charter schools, which are great, but they don't have any uh, programs like ESAs, vouchers, or tax credit scholarships. And although an ESA passed in 2017 through the Senate, it was blocked in the House, despite having a Republican majority in the House. And their argument is, well, you know, we have rural areas in Texas and, you know, well, that means we get to side with the monopoly. I mean, to me, it's just an excuse to side with the establishment. It's not a real argument because, look, one, if if you don't have any private schools, if that's true, well, uh, this isn't going to hurt your public schools. You have the worst case scenario is that nothing changes. But the reality is, even if you have one or two private schools, that's better than having zero options at all. And then supply is not fixed. If you have the funding following the child, you'll have more options opening up, especially when you have low cost options like micro schools and pandemic pods that can sprout up without creating a new brick and mortar school. And this this um initiative on the uh, Republican primary uh, uh, proposition for school choice, I I was like, I, I was pretty interested in this claim that, you know, oh, it's the rural areas telling us they don't want school choice. And that's what they say. I, I took the 10 most rural counties in Texas and just reported it on Twitter. And it was overwhelmingly majority support. I think the lowest one was 76% support, but all the rest were well above 80% or even 90%. And um, I think I just tweeted out, like, don't tell me that rural Republicans don't support school choice. It's just an excuse to side with the teachers unions in your area. And, and, and frankly, it's it's no longer a legitimate excuse. And I am optimistic. We'll look, And then look, point to West Virginia. West Virginia has rural areas. They had no problem passing a universal education savings account in 2021, going from zero to 100 real quick on school choice. And then I'm optimistic again because parents aren't going to unsee what they saw in 2020. They're not just going to sit down and shut up no matter how many times members of the establishment try to label them as domestic terrorists. They 
felt powerless all across the country in March of 2020 and and over the pa- over the past two years. And parents are going to fight to make sure they never feel powerless like that ever again. And they're not going away anytime soon. These parents are the new special interest group in town. And the good news is that, look, the teachers unions have finally overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant. These parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. And politicians would be wise to listen to them, regardless of their party, going forward. Because these parents care about their kids more than anybody else. And look, um, I think more politicians are seeing that it could be politically disastrous to oppose parental rights in in education. Look what happened in Virginia. You had Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate for the the governor of Virginia, who – who, who made a gaffe that will probably go down as one of the biggest campaign blunders of all time when at the final debate he said, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. The Yunkin campaign leaned into that and exposed um, the anti-parent rhetoric. Terry McAuliffe did not backpedal. He quadrupled down on the anti-parent stance. And in a state that went 10 percentage points to Biden, the Republican candidate Yunkin won by two percentage points in just, and, and that was just a year before that Biden had won by ten percentage points. So don't. Uh, I, I mean, the takeaway there is, it, I think, for politicians who support educational freedom, they should lean into that because it is a popular position. Parents support school choice. They they support the right to show up at the school board to advocate for change in the public schools as well, and to come out against parent choice and parent parental involvement in schools that is a political disaster that enemies of 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 educational freedom do not want to talk about because when they do it blows up in their face. Corey, good luck uh, in your efforts to shift the Overton window. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinac.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.